Well, this morning we are looking at uh, the second second in our series here on uh, the five ones, one time for prayer. And uh, we're looking at in this series common patterns of uh, Christian behavior or the, the things that Christians do and why we do what we do. If you look through time and through history and around the world, doesn't matter what culture, doesn't matter what uh, century you're in, uh, you will find Christians behaving in a certain way, and we've sort of summarized them in this five ways. They worship, they pray, they, they get together in small groups, they, they do ministry to serve, and they do evangelism. This is what Christians do uh, over and over and over again, and uh, all the time. And we're, we're looking at these five ones as sort of a checkup for ourselves. Why do we understand why do we as Christians do these things? And then if we're not doing these things in our own lives as, a, as kind of a health check, why don't we? Why, why perhaps do we go through seasons where we're not gathering together for discipleship and growth and fellowship? Why do we go through seasons as Christians where we're not serving uh, or, or that we're not evangelizing, that we have no friend or friendships in our life with unbelievers um, moving them towards the gospel and towards Christ? And so it's, a, it's kind of a health check that we're going through to understand and to examine ourselves. And of the, in that examination theme, of, of the five that we're going to do, this one that we're doing today, this one time of prayer, is probably uh, that point where the doctor says, this is going to sting a little, right? Like, this might hurt, you know, and then he jabs his finger into your kidney and, you know, it more than hurts. But, but this one on prayer is one that is very personal, is very intimate, and is probably the clearest reflection of really where we're at on how we're doing in our walk with God. This personal, one-on-one, intimate time on a regular basis with God, it really holds up a mirror to our Christian life. Because a lot of people can come to church and enjoy the music and the encouragement and the social connections, you know, and the free babysitting for a couple hours. And, you know, they, they, they like the, the moral teaching and the coffee hour and the snacks. And, and coming to worship isn't necessarily really a reflection for some people of, of where they're at in treasuring Christ and how close they are to God. As much as it is treasuring the friendships and belonging to a moral community, which is good. It's good to belong to a moral community. But that doesn't hold up a really clear mirror. And the same can be said for small groups or for even for ministry service, even for evangelism. We know that people like to be liked. And so, you know, to be part of a small group and to be, you know, going over for dinner every night and to be uh, meeting with new people and things like that, we'll just do that out of our flesh even. Or even one ministry for service because we like to, you know, we, we like to help people and we feel good when we do that. Even, even one friend for Christ, even evangelism, you know, we can kind of do for other reasons, but this one today, this one time of prayer, in intimate, private, secret, regular prayer with God, that's where the mirror is perhaps the clearest for us in terms of where we are and what we're doing in our walk with God. As the saying begun by D.L. Moody goes, the true character is revealed by what you do in the dark. Or as it's popularly rephrased, and we've heard your true character is known by what you do when nobody is watching. Not dance like nobody's watching, but what you're doing when nobody's watching. And that really tells the truth, right? When, when everybody's gone, when you're home alone, when you're on a business trip, when you're, uh, you know, just even if you're going for a walk in the park and you're just on your own and what you're thinking and what you're doing and, and where you are drawn to on your own really tells the true story of where you're at in your character. And so this second discipline of private, secret, one-on-one time with God, this personal prayer is, is the shiniest mirror of the five that we can hold up 
And sadly, too often, as you can imagine, it's a scary reflection or it's an absent one. And I speak for myself here too, right? Maybe I'm just the only one, but it's difficult on an ongoing basis, season after season after season, daily, to be sold out for the amount of time that you feel you should be and, and we should be to be honoring the God of the universe with our prayers and with our presence because he wants to be with us and so often we just want to sleep in, right? The God of the universe wants to spend time with us and we just want to binge watch one more Netflix show. And it's a scary reflection because we wonder, we become, as, as, as Mark prayed, we become not just content with the peace and the satisfaction and the blessing of being where God's planted us here in Halliburton, but we become, as Christians, even complacent and take for granted the fact that the God of the universe desires to be with us. And we give them two minutes when we remember pulling into the driving, into the parking lot at work, you know, to pray, you know, or while we're sitting at a red light, you know, or, or when we are reminded because, you know, we come here and we pray and it's corporate prayer. It's like, oh, oh good. Now I'm reminded to pray. So I'll pray along with Mark and, and that'll be my prayer time. And it's a scary reflection sometimes because we realize as humans, we just, we, we beat ourselves up and we wonder why is, why is this private practice of prayer so hard? Why do I struggle to find words? Why does my mind wander when the God of the universe desires my attention? Especially when many of us as Christians have had such rich seasons of regular private prayer in our past, right? And, and I know, brothers and sisters, that you've been there with me. There's been seasons where, where you've had that diligent time of prayer and it's been such an amazing blessing to you and you've just been overflowing and you're thinking, I'm never going to stop doing this. you know. And then a month later, two months later, you realize, where did that prayer time go? So this is a really scary mirror to hold up in our lives and I get that. And I just want to start with a couple of reasons why it might be so scary and why it might be so hard and then we will move into a, hopefully an encouragement from Luke 4 as Jesus teaches us a parable as he gives us a parable as he teaches his disciples about prayer. The Puritan Thomas Brooks, one of the first Puritans, writing about 400 years ago, he outlines some of the problems we encounter in personal prayer in a short book. And uh, I would encourage it to you, even though it's 400 years old, it doesn't get old, The Secret Key to Heaven. And you can get it on Kindle for two bucks. It'll be the best two bucks you spend this week. And it's a short book. You don't have to be worried. It's not very long. But I'm just going to touch on, he outlines 20 different things about prayer. And I'm just going to touch on four that I think are our biggest challenges, and then we'll go to Luke 11 and see how Jesus gives an answer to his disciples. And the barriers to prayer, first of all, I think as as Christians, Thomas Brooks acknowledges that in private prayer we're immediately engaged in a spiritual battle. Or as he phrases it, every secret prayer adds to the devil's torment. And, And we have to get this right, that our enemy does not want us praying. He does not want us on our knees, in our closet, or head down on the kitchen table, or by the bed, or wherever it is, or on the bench in the park, our enemy does not want us in this type of prayer, especially. Because this does harm to his kingdom. And it does glory to God and his kingdom. And so we are in a spiritual battle. And one of the reasons that this is so hard for us as Christians is because the enemy is using every distraction he can come up with in your life to keep you away from private prayer. And so just understand that as Christians is that when you are sort of looking at your spiritual disciplines and what you're doing, that this is a spiritual battle. And one of your first prayers and one of your first cries for help 
has to be to God that He would give you the strength and the courage and the protection literally by His angels to preserve this time for you because it is a spiritual battle and that makes it hard for us to go into our prayer times because Satan wants to distract us in every possible way because it torments him when God's people are in prayer. And then as a Christian who's been struggling in the habit of prayer, our own flesh can add its resistance to personal prayer, I think, in three key ways. First of all, that we know that private prayer exposes private sins. When we pray in public or or we have people pray for us and over us like we do here congregationally and even as we're going to do later on, uh, which is good to have corporate and congregational prayer, but in those types of prayer environments in the public, it's not too hard to avoid our own personal and secret sins. Public prayer is not the right place for them to be exposed anyway. And so we can feel quite comfortable praying for others and praying in general and being prayed over and count our prayer life complete entirely in public prayer and we just sort of subconsciously or maybe very consciously avoid private prayer because private prayer, we have no reason not to expose our private sin because God already knows it. When we bend our knees alone in our closet and we open our heart to God, then we know that we will see ourselves most clearly. Psalm 19.12 says, Who can discern his own errors? Cleanse me from secret faults. I mean, people near us and in our family and in our circle of friends, they know some of our errors and some of our sins, right? And we know a little more of our own secret sin than they do, but God knows it all. And so let me just encourage you, even though this sounds discouraging, there is no sense going to God and trying to avoid saying something or not telling him something because he already knows better than you do what your problems are and what your sin is. So you can feel fully confident confessing all your sin to God and you will not shock him or surprise him. He already knows. And that can be hard to face when you're out of practice or not near God for some time. It can be hard to go into that closet. It can be hard to get down on our knees knowing that we are going to confront the God of the universe and lay our hearts open. And that's a barrier, and it prevents us from praying. Another barrier from our flesh comes from the reality that private prayer eliminates hypocrisy. For, For some people, they pray very little or not at all in private because there's just no social benefit. They're they're happy to be seen praying, or they're happy to be seen at a prayer meeting, and you know, they they more than more than they desire to pray privately themselves. You know, they enjoy being prayed over by elders, they enjoy being prayed over in a small group by other people, because that's safe, and they enjoy praying in those situations, but they don't necessarily see praying on their own because they just don't see the benefit of it. Matthew 6, 5, Jesus warns, And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men. As assuredly I say to you, they have their reward. Private prayer gets no public reward. And so, and I get it, this is subconscious for a lot of us, and it's not necessarily everybody's struggle. But there's no big Christian payoff for private prayer. There's no public reward. There's no sense of being in worship with other people or other people seeing you or, or getting some sort of credit for it. And so our flesh resists spending energy where there's no reward. I mean, it's just being human. Why would I do something if I'm not going to benefit from it? And so that's a resistance in our flesh. And then thirdly, private prayer evokes shame over our silence. And this is one of those catch-22s that, again, maybe 
Maybe you're not like me. Maybe I'm alone in this, but I don't pray because I've not prayed. So then I'm embarrassed to go and pray because it's been so long since I prayed. And then it's been another few days since I prayed. So then I'm embarrassed even more to go and pray because we're ashamed of our silence before God. You know, and it's been three or four days or it's been three or four weeks and we think, I can't go. What, am I going to go talk to God now? He's going to be like, where have you been for two months? Right? And, and in our flesh, we start to get into this habit that comes from the shame over our silence. It's not that we don't have words to use. We all have lots of words, right? I know. Just ask the wrong person about Donald Trump. You'll hear hours, right? You know, or ask somebody the best places to fish in Halliburton. 45 minutes later, you've got them all, right? You know, ask somebody about their grandkids. You'll be there a half hour later, right? Or what their latest ailment is, or even their views on certain doctrine. I mean, don't get me started on superlapsarianism. Two hours later, you'll know all you want to know about superlapsarianism. But, you know, we all have plenty of things to say if you get us started on the right topic. But then we kneel by our bed, or we rest our head in our hands for a few moments, and we are suddenly ashamed that we don't have words for our Creator. Right? We're suddenly ashamed that we can't gather our thoughts, even though we can talk for hours about the Maple Leafs. Right? Or we can talk for you know, hours about whatever was on TV last night. For two minutes, we try to come to the God of the universe, and we're ashamed because we have no words. So these are barriers to prayer. These are real. I'm just saying, this is real. I get it. And I'm there with you. The reasons we do not pray are many, and some are superficial, and some of them are so deep-rooted, like some of these that I've talked about, that maybe we don't even realize that that is the root of why we've stopped praying. And the struggle to stay constant in prayer is real for every Christian, and the struggle is strongest here, I think, of all these five things that Christians do. We can look around, and we can see people doing this, and this, and this, and this, but we don't see this, and the struggle is hardest right here. This private, secret, intimate time of prayer. And I don't think I'm alone in that. It's the most important thing we can do as Christians in order to know who we be as Christians. So now I'm going to turn to Luke chapter 11, and we're going to see what Jesus had to say to his disciples about prayer. Just one parable today, and it's not going to answer every question, but what we should take as our encouragement to run daily to God in prayer, without shame and without fear and in victory. And I'm just going to pray before we look into Luke. Father God, even right now I ask that your Holy Spirit would be here among us. And uh, I, I thank you for your patience, God. I thank you that you are patient with us, that we can come to you and ask forgiveness even for this, that we have been negligent in our time spent with you that we have this great passion for you and what you've done for us and we love and treasure your son and then days go by without a conversation. And that's because our foolish hearts wander and we're distracted and we're in a spiritual battle and we're ashamed. Lord, all these things conspire to keep us away from you. And so, Lord, this morning we look to your word, we look to the words of your son, Jesus, to give us a, a teaching, to give us a parable, to give us an instruction and an encouragement that we would run to you in prayer, and that it would be our daily bread. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Luke chapter 11. I'll just, I'll just read the first 13 chapters here. They'll be very familiar to you. And uh, then we'll look at the parable as we go forward. 
It's up there, good. One day Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, give us each day your daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us, and lead us not into temptation. And then Jesus said to them, Suppose you have a friend, and you go to him at midnight and say, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I have no food to offer him. And suppose the one inside answers, Don't bother me, the door is already locked, and my children and I are in bed, and I can't get up and give you anything. And I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. And so I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? This is the Lord's Word. And so what we want to focus on in this parable, I'm not going to go over the prayer or the model of prayer. And if you want more teaching on prayer, I actually did a five-week series on prayer almost two years ago. If you go to the website and just type in prayer, you'll get five sermons from January of 2016 that will expand on this. Just today, we want to focus on this parable that Jesus gives the disciple just after he teaches them this daily pattern of praying. And after giving them the pattern, there is something, after teaching them this is how you pray, there was something that Jesus knew he would have to have his disciples understand. It would be important for his followers to know. More than just the pattern itself. The pattern is good. It's a great and perfect pattern that you can pray by. But after giving them, in in my text, it's like a three-line pattern. He gives this very short little pattern of prayer, and then he goes on, and, and as it's recorded here, he gives them 11 more lines of parable to explain the nature of what's going on in prayer. So there's a lesson about prayer that Jesus wants his followers to know. And so when you read this parable with modern ears, it it can be hard to understand the story. He says, you know, suppose you have a friend. And I don't think Jesus means that sarcastically the way I would say it. Oh, you have a friend? Um, I I think he's being sincere. I'm pretty sure. He says, suppose you have a friend. You know, you have a friend. And and by the way, the story is about friends, and that's important. Okay, so right off the bat, this is a story about friendship and about friends, and that's important. But this friend of yours has surprise visitors and he needs some food. And for us, that doesn't seem like something that we would go wake up a neighbor about. But for them, you have to understand, in this culture, this is an important issue. Okay, This is really important to this guy. Very important to be hospitable. And then secondly, it's very late. The house is locked up and the whole family is asleep. And again, for us in our modern times and living in our culture, this doesn't seem like a big deal, right? Because we would just get a text in our phone and it would vibrate and then we would tiptoe downstairs and take care of it. But in this culture, the whole family generally sleeps together in the same room. There are only two to three room buildings. You've got a room where you eat, a room where you sleep, and a room where you live, and that's about it. And so you've got nine kids finally to sleep, and you don't appreciate the yelling and the banging, or that you have to crawl out of bed and you know, get over to the door and rattle cupboards for food. So I get that the parable loses some power in the 2,000 years that's passed since the telling of it. But 
But just to update it a little bit, what Jesus is saying is you just imagine that you get a phone call at 1 a.m. in the morning and it's cold and it's rainy out and that maybe the phone call is about someone that hasn't come home when they were expected to, just totally hypothetically, and they're probably stuck in the woods on a washed out ATV trail and their phone is dead and you have no GPS and it's really late at night and you're thinking that Barry Hart's going to be home by now, but he's not back. And so you have to get up and you got to get your friends out of bed and your family out of bed and get on ATVs and go out into the trail to try to find this person that is lost. This is not convenient, right? And you don't know what trail he's on or where he is or what's going on. But because you are a friend, you get out of bed and do it. You're a human friend who requires waking up because you're asleep and you do it with some resignation because it is an inconvenience, but the parable teaches that, hey, even human friends do this for each other. That's the point that Jesus is saying here. He's saying these guys are friends and even friends will do this for each other. Human friends. But to understand this parable, we have to see that Jesus means it to be a comparison by contrast. He's contrasting the nominal goodness of men to the infinite goodness of God. It's contrasting the audacity that is required to overcome the reluctance of men in contrast to the willingness of God where that is not required. It's not primarily a parable about persistence, as it's often taught, as it is an encouragement that God's people should pray because God is eager to respond. You see here, these are the contrasts between the human neighbor and God. Human friends sleep, and they are unavailable, and there are inconvenient times, but there is no bad time to approach God. The contrast between the human friend and God is that he does not sleep. Psalm 121.4 says, He who keeps Israel will not slumber or sleep. God is always awake and always ready to answer. It's not an inconvenience. And the contrast, the other contrast that Jesus is showing here is that human friends can be reluctant to help because it's inconvenient to them. But God does not have to overcome any reluctance. Psalm 86.5 says, O Lord, you are so good, so ready to forgive, so full of unfailing love for all who ask for your help. There is no inconvenience to God to respond to your prayer. There is no cost that God has not already paid in the life and the death of His Son to help you. So our requests do not inconvenience Him. To interpret, interpret this parable or the, or the Luke 18 parable as, as if God is requiring cajoling or somehow that we have to you know, beg from God and help overcome His reluctance to help us, is not right. That's not what this parable is teaching, as we'll see in verses 11 to 13. God is ready and eager to help His children. And this parable that Jesus is telling is a parable of contrast. He says, even you humans take care of each other and will get out of bed and will overcome your reluctance. So just imagine what God's willing to do. And what Jesus teaches through these contrasts is that the friend is right and bold in approaching and asking his human nature for help. Right? Like if, if we're willing to go to a neighbor and ask for help, and we're right in doing that, and, and we can expect a response from a neighbor, then how much more should we expect a response from God? It's, God is a far better friend. God is a more willing friend. He's a better resourced friend. The friend who called upon the neighbor 
is honoring his neighbor by going to God and saying, can you help me? And God says, absolutely I can. Why did the man in need go to his neighbor? It's because he understood and he believed in the character and nature of his neighbor. He said, I'm stuck in this great need and I know where to go because I trust in the character that, yeah, he's a human friend and it's inconvenient for him and he's going to be reluctant, but I trust that he will still come through for me. And so if we're willing to do that for a human neighbor, Jesus is saying, how much more shouldn't you come to God? Because he doesn't have to overcome any reluctance. And it's never one in the morning for him. He's not asleep. He's not slumbering. He's a good father who desires to to do help. And so if we trust our earthly friends to help us, then we cannot help but honor God by going to him first with our needs and trusting in his character above that of our earthly friends. And now Jesus takes that teaching. He says, here's how you pray, and here's how I want you to understand how you go to God in prayer. Right? Don't be afraid to go to him. He's not reluctant, and he's not inconvenienced. He's ready to help. And he drives it home twice in case the disciples didn't get it, which quite often, like us, they didn't. So in verses 9 and 10, he drives it home the first time. So he says, So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, the door will be opened. It's as clearly as he can say it. He's saying, go and do this. Call upon God. He's a better neighbor. And in our private prayers, from Jesus' model, he says, ask for your daily bread for provision. Ask that your sins be forgiven. Ask for the grace to forgive others. Ask for protection from temptation and protection from the evil of the world. These are the things when you say, well, what do I ask for? What do I seek? What do I knock? Jesus gave us in the model. He says, ask for forgiveness. Ask for provision. Ask for protection. And so in our daily prayers, as Jesus says, ask, 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 it will be given. We could be praying daily this way as an example. Daily, we could be praying for Lakeside Church and its ministries to be provided with volunteers and resources and with opportunity for the gospel. We can pray daily for Halliburton and the families and households up and down our streets that they would seek forgiveness, that they would resist temptation, that they would offer forgiveness and grace to others, that they would be protected from evil. We can pray every day for our families and pray daily for ourselves and ask these same things for ourselves that we ask that daily for these things. And now you may ask, Paul, if Jesus says, ask and it will be given, seek and I'll find, knock and it will be opened, does that mean I can pray for anything? Can I just name it and claim it? Because Jesus says, well, if you ask, you'll receive. And so just as an aside, we have to deal with that issue. And John Calvin, I think, perhaps has the best answer or illustration to this. In his commentary to the Philippians, Calvin reminds us, he says, The Spirit must hold our affections in check and does so by the bridle of the Word of God. Isn't that great? I just love how he put that together. That we have human affections even as we come to God in prayer. And John Calvin is saying that those affections have to be held in check and the Holy Spirit holds our human affections or our human desires and patterns of request and he does it by the bridle of the word of God. And that means that when we pray, that we can confidently pray for those things that we know are in God's word because they're in God's will because they they are in God's word. And so again, I'll give you some examples. So daily, you can pray and you can ask God and know That if you ask, you will receive, or if you seek, you will find, or if you knock, it will be opened for these things. 
We can daily ask that God work in us to be conformed into the likeness of Jesus. Romans 8.28 We can daily go before God and ask that we have the opportunity and courage to make our lives to be a living sacrifice for Him. Romans 12.1 We can daily go to God and ask for Him to increase our affections and our worship of Him. John 4.23 We can daily ask that He cause us to love mercy. Micah 6.8 We can daily go to God and ask Him to provide strength for us to bear up under trials, 1 Corinthians 10.13. We can go to God daily and ask every single day and know that we will receive wisdom, James 1.5. These are things, when you pray in this way, that are in God's Word and in God's will, that He desires that you be conformed into the likeness of His Son. He desires that you love mercy. He desires that you have the strength and courage to bear up under trial. He desires all those things, and when you pray and ask, He will deliver those things. And there's hundreds of other things that are good and right things that we can ask for every single day and God will answer. It's no accident that Jesus calls it daily bread and says, we don't live by bread alone, but by the word of God. But when we are in prayer and we're asking God, please notice that God does not promise you good grades on your test. God does not promise you the girl that you like will think you're cool. God does not promise you a high-paying job. God in His Word does not promise you security or safety or even health. That doesn't mean that you can never pray for those things, but just understand that those are not promises God has made. And so when we talk about asking and receiving, be careful that we understand that God has given us dozens and dozens, hundreds of things that we can ask for, and He absolutely will deliver on, and they are good things to be conformed into the likeness of Christ, to increase in mercy, to have opportunity for the gospel, to have the strength to bear up under trial. We can ask for those things every day, and God will absolutely give them to you. But He has not promised you good grades. He's not promised you money. He's not promised you success. He's not promised you fame. He's not promised that every relationship's going to be healed. He's not promised those things. What he's promised is that he will give you joy and wisdom and courage and victory and strength. So don't fear. God gives what is good. And Jesus says, ask, seek, knock, and God will answer. He will answer with what is good. And just in case the disciples still don't understand that teaching, then Jesus goes one more time to drive it home. To understand that when you... Ask, seek, and knock, God will give you what is good in verses 11 to 13. He says, Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? You see, Jesus can't really make the the comparison by contrast any more plain now. right? He's showing you that what I'm teaching you, disciples, is I'm contrasting how you depend on failed and weak and even evil humans to do good, and so then how much more can you count on your Father in heaven to do good to you? Jesus is basically saying, do you understand? Do you see, disciples? Do you get it, my children? You call earthly fathers good simply because they wouldn't trick or harm their own children, and so if you call earthly fathers good just because they won't harm their own children, then just imagine how good your heavenly Father is. And so the teaching here is that we come daily before God. And Jesus gives us that model of daily prayer. And there's lots of teaching on that you can go to for a model of daily prayer. But what Jesus wants to drive home to his disciples with these parables 
is he says, look, you can trust that God will answer your prayer. You can trust that God will give you what is good. Even when we ask for things that we think are good for us, right? Like, I think, I really do think a new motorcycle is a good thing for me, right? So, I mean, I could go and pray for something like that because, you know, maybe I even want to use it to, you know, do a motorcycle ministry to people who drive motorcycles and, you know, I could use it for the kingdom and all of that stuff. But God knows whether a motorcycle is good for me or not and he will answer for what's good for me. We don't always understand what's good, but God will answer with what's good. And where we're on safe territory, where we're on safe ground, is when we go to God in his own word, bridled by his word, and we bridle our affections by the things that we know in his scripture that God wants for us, those things that I mentioned. And so as we consider who we are as Christians, and we consider the things that we do, what are the regular patterns of our Christian life? This daily, private, secret time that we spend with God is so personal and so reflective of who we are and where our walk is with him. Of these five things on the checklist that we can go through, this one time for prayer, I get it. It is the hardest one to daily set aside private, secret, intimate time with God is hard because Satan doesn't want us to do it. And so we're in a spiritual battle just to get there. And then once we're there, our flesh does not necessarily want to confront the things that are in our heart. And it's difficult to go without shame before the Holy One. But the encouragement that Jesus gives is that He is a good Father. There is no reason to be ashamed before Him because of what Christ has done. That when you go before Him and ask, He is not asleep, He is not inconvenienced, He is not reluctant, He wants to answer your prayer if you are there to ask. And you ask in His Spirit. God enjoys in his affection for us giving his children good things. But if we're never there, if weeks go by and months go by and we are never in the presence of our creator and our savior, then what can he do? How can he help us when we don't want help? So if you've been far from God for months or weeks or even years in this regard, then it is time to reflect on private intimate time spent with God and where you are with that. Listen, don't be afraid. Jesus says, come to me daily. Ask, seek, and knock, and I'll answer. I will provide what you need. I will forgive your sin. I'll give you the grace to forgive others. I will give you a way of escape and temptation. I will protect you from the evil of this world. But you need to come to me daily. It's a daily battle. One of the things that Thomas Brooks says that was so interesting to me in this daily thing. He said, look, you sin daily, and so you need to come to God daily. You are sinned against daily, and so our prayer needs to be daily. You're tempted daily, and so we should be praying daily. We're confronted with the evil of this culture daily, and so we need to be praying daily. The one time for prayer, as much as I have no intention of trying to sound legalistic or pharisaical or anything like that, it really is daily. It really is one time a day that we need to be before God. And we don't need to be afraid. Come to God and ask. God is willing to give his children good things. Of all the things we do as Christians, prayer is the most personal. It's also the most powerful in our lives. And it's the most telling reflection of where we are in our relationship with God. Let's pray. Father God, I knew going into this, this one was going to be difficult. I mean, it's great, like last week, to talk about worship. 
I mean, it's fantastic to come here and sing and hear your word and lift our hands up and praise you and be encouraged. And Father, this one on prayer should be just as encouraging for us, but I know that it's not always encouraging. And, and, and there are prayer people there are here. Lord, I know there's Christians here this morning that are just, they're, they're at the high point in their season right now. And they're praying every day and it's an hour every morning or 45 minutes or two hours. I don't know what it is, but it's refreshing and they're in your word and they're loving it. And then there's others here that maybe aren't quite that high up the mountain. And they remember those times, but they're in a bit of a valley right now. And it's been a few days, it's been a few weeks since they've really had that passionate joyful, fulfilling time with you, Lord. So that's who I'm praying for right now. I'm praying that we would take this parable of Christ, that he taught his disciples, not just how to pray, but to pray boldly and with audacity because their God is good. Our God is good. You are good. You desire us to come before you. You're not asleep. You're not inconvenient. You're not reluctant. You're just waiting for us to come. And so, Lord, even this week, for those of us that maybe have maybe hung our head in shame a little bit, because it's been a long time since we've been there, Lord, we ask forgiveness, and we want to come boldly. Just reignite our passion to be with you. Reignite our desire to be filled up at your well, and not turn to empty cisterns. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.